Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this investigation and trial, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and child death that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In the summer of 1995, the story of Christine Bunch seized the people of Decatur County, Indiana. The 21-year-old woman accused of burning down her home and murdering her toddler son was the talk of the town. And as word traveled, a trail of malicious gossip was left in its wake. As an unmarried high school dropout living in a trailer park, Christine Bunch wasn't exactly a sympathetic figure. Rumors spread that she was a welfare queen living off the government. Others suggested that Christine had psychological problems or was in an abusive relationship. Newspapers across Indiana joined the debate on Christine's guilt. They speculated on her motives. Why would she do such a cold-blooded thing? And why did she remain so quiet about the case? What did she have to hide? Then Christine's hometown paper, the Greensburg Daily News, reported that she admitted to the crimes she was accused of. The paper wrote, Bunch told the Indiana State Police during an interview that she didn't know why she had started the fire. The article ran on the front page of the Sunday paper. The headline declared Christine Bunch's confession to murder in large, bold letters. It ran on February 25, 1996, one day before Christine Bunch's trial began in Greensburg. How should we determine a person's guilt? Do we defer to the evidence discovered by police or the verdict reached by a jury? And what happens when the evidence and the verdict don't line up? Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and this is Not Guilty, a ParCast original. Each week we look at complicated criminal cases that test the limits of innocent until proven guilty. Today we continue to explore the 1995 arson case of Christine Bunch. 
Last week, we followed the investigation of a house fire that killed three-year-old Anthony Bunch. Eventually, his mother, Christine, was arrested for his murder. This week, we'll examine Christine's criminal trial and understand how the jury reached their verdict. We'll also discuss Christine's subsequent retrial after new evidence emerged. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merchandise. Head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. By the time the Sunday paper hit front porches and driveways on February 25, 1996, Christine Bunch's name had already been scandalized. She was immediately found guilty in the court of public opinion, but local papers had not yet answered a crucial question. Why did Christine do it? For months, Christine hoped the courtroom would remain untouched by the publicity of the outside world. In the wake of the Sunday edition, she was terrified. Already despondent over her arrest, Christine didn't feel stable enough to defend herself on the stand. She made the decision not to testify in her own defense for fear of damaging herself further. Her public defender, Frank Hamilton, agreed with her choice for the same reason he previously told her not to speak to the media. On Monday, February 26, 1996, over seven months after the fated day of the fire that killed Anthony Bunch, the murder and arson trial of Christine Bunch commenced. Presiding over the trial was Decatur County Circuit Court Judge John A. Westhafer. Among the prosecution sat State Attorney William O. Smith and Indiana State Fire Investigators Brian Frank and James Skaggs. Christine, now 22 years old and four months pregnant, sat quietly next to attorney Frank Hamilton. She tried to follow the instructions he had given her, don't react, don't show too much emotion or too little, don't give them anything they can use against you. Christine sat rigid in her chair. When prosecuting attorney William O. Smith took the floor, he already knew his audience. The jury was selected from a group of Decatur County locals, individuals who had no doubt seen the many headlines and articles covering Christine's story over the past seven months. This would be his launching pad. Smith began by citing Christine's indirect admission of guilt, the same one publicized by papers just the day before. But this, Smith stated, was not even the full extent of Christine's incriminating testimony. He recounted to the jury her multiple, varied statements to police about the time leading up to the fire. Smith argued that Christine's behavior in these testimonies was questionable at best, if not entirely suspicious. Christine was aloof and evasive, giving police inconsistent and often contradictory information in her statements. Smith claimed that this was done in an attempt to mislead investigators. He promised that the evidence presented by his expert witnesses would reveal that Christine had good reason to evade questioning. 
they would prove that she doused her trailer with gasoline, lit a match, and walked away, letting the trailer burn to the ground with her toddler son inside. And she must be found guilty. Christine watched on as Smith ripped apart her testimonies and constructed his own version of her intentions for the jury. He discussed her as if she wasn't in the room. It was surreal. And eventually, Christine was numb. She felt as though it were true. She wasn't really there at all. When Christine's defense attorney, Frank Hamilton, took the floor, he attempted to explain to the jury what the public perceived as Christine's greatest flaw, her puzzlingly stoic affect in the wake of Anthony's death. According to Hamilton, he knew that, quote, some viewed her reaction to the death of her child as not what they thought it would be. She never cried, not even at the scene. He stated, perhaps shock, personality, I'm not sure, but I doubt it was callousness, yet this is how it was viewed, cold. Hamilton argued that the case against Christine was based almost entirely on fallible observations made by investigators at the crime scene, the same investigators that Smith would call to the stand as experts. Hamilton found the fire marshal's investigation to be incomplete, they had rushed to a conclusion within just hours of arriving at the scene. Hamilton emphasized that the investigation was done in haste and that potential accidental causes of the fire were blatantly ignored. No witnesses saw Christine set the fire and no evidence of gas was found on Christine or her clothes. Hamilton then posed the question local headlines had debated for months. What was her motive? Christine was found to be psychologically sound of mind. She had no hidden issues in her relationship with her son's father and no insurance money to claim off the burned-down trailer or on Anthony's life. And despite the false news story printed just the day before, Hamilton stressed to the jury there was no testimony whatsoever wherein Christine confessed to either arson or murder. Hamilton concluded by stating that Christine simply didn't have a motive and that the prosecution had no grounds to prove otherwise. She simply was not guilty. But when State Attorney Smith returned to the floor, he responded to Hamilton's challenge with a searing reply. Quote, We're not going to present any evidence of a motive. It's hard to find a motive for someone to kill a three-year-old child. Prosecutor Smith first summoned his pledged series of expert witnesses, starting with fire marshal investigators Brian Frank and James Skaggs. They had both examined the site of the blaze firsthand and discovered compelling evidence of arson. Frank and Skaggs described the V-shaped burn patterns they found in the living room and in Anthony's bedroom. In each room, holes had burned into the trailer's floor. Frank explained how the holes indicated arson, stating, It's unusual for a fire to burn in a downward manner. Something has to draw the fire down. Liquid accelerant would do that. Both Frank and Skaggs stated that they believed Christine Bunch poured an accelerant, such as gas or kerosene, directly onto the linoleum floor of both rooms before lighting a match. Once the fire had started, 
she let the flames do the rest. In Hamilton's cross-examination of Frank and Skaggs, he hoped to highlight inconsistencies in the two witnesses' testimonies. He would then use those contradictions to lead the men into discussing the potential of an unknown factor as the cause of the fire. But his plan backfired. Instead, Frank and Skaggs simply restated their answers, reinforcing the prosecution's argument. Frank hammered home the scenario, stating, There were two separate fires. One was in the south bedroom. That was caused by liquid accelerant being present. The second fire originated at the doorway into the living room, and there was a liquid accelerant poured across the floor of the living room to the front door of the mobile home. Frustrated, Hamilton simply announced once again that the observations of state investigators were fallible and ignored accidental causes as the source of the fire. After Hamilton's failed attempts to attack Frank and Skaggs' investigation, Prosecutor Smith called another expert to corroborate their findings, William Kennard, a forensic analyst and impartial employee of the U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms. Kennard explained that he had received 10 samples from the fire in total, primarily of flooring throughout the trailer. In his gas chromatography analysis, he found that half of the samples tested positive for a heavy petroleum distillate associated with liquid accelerants such as kerosene and fuel oil. All of these positive samples were found in flooring from either the living room or bedroom. The prosecution had dealt an unexpected, lethal blow. Hamilton was prepared to argue the fallibility of the state's subjective arson investigation, but the results of hard science were entirely different. Now his only option was damage control. Hamilton called defense expert witness and independent arson investigator Tom Hulse. Hulse confirmed Hamilton's previous point that unknown causes of the fire were not considered. The blaze should have been classified as undetermined. Due to unknown factors at the scene, there was a reasonable probability that the fire had been accidental. Hamilton used Hulse's testimony to relaunch his attack on details of the investigation he could undermine. The gas can found on the property came back clean of Christine's fingerprints, and the gas station attendants in the area had no memory of her face, much less her buying gas. The prosecution, Hamilton stated, had no hard evidence to substantiate their case against Christine Bunch. But it was too little too late. The results of the ATF report from William Kennard's testimony were too damning, and Hamilton had barely softened their impact. Now, the trial was out of his hands. After four days of proceedings, the jury was finally sent to deliberate. Coming up, the jury delivers their final verdict in the trial of Christine Bunch. Now back to the story. In February 1996, the trial of the state of Indiana versus Christine Bunch commenced. For four days, Christine, then 22 years old and four months pregnant, sat silently as the defense and state prosecution argued their cases before a judge and jury. Then on March 4th, the jury was sent to deliberate. 
it took them less than a day to reach a verdict. Just hours later, the jury filed back into the courtroom. Christine Bunch, defense attorney Frank Hamilton, and prosecutor William Smith waited with bated breath. Christine had heeded her attorney's advice throughout the four-day-long trial. She sat still in her chair as witnesses paraded to and from the stand and lawyers paced the courtroom floor. Through it all, the jury never heard a word, never heard a sound even from Christine. That was until the jury delivered their verdict. Christine Bunch was guilty. Christine sobbed quietly through the announcement. For days, she had watched in silence as her past was distorted through the mouths of lawyers. Now, she cried openly for her future. Her life had been irrevocably shattered. All of the 12 jurors convicted Christine on both arson and murder charges. They concluded that she would serve the crimes consecutively, 50 years for arson and 60 for murder, a sentence that would amount to a lifetime in prison. However, Judge John Westhafer merged the two sentences to a total of 60 years, based on grounds that consecutive sentences violated double jeopardy, which protects convicts from being tried twice for the same crime. In the case of Christine Bunch, it meant she could not be sentenced for both murder and the underlying felony, arson. And though Prosecutor Smith initially sought life without parole, the jury unanimously recommended against that penalty. With good behavior, Christine would be eligible after 30 years in 2026, leaving her behind bars for her unborn baby's entire adolescence and young adulthood. In Judge Westhafer's final ruling, he told Christine before the court that she did not deserve to raise her second child. He stated, quote, I understand you have arranged to have yourself impregnated during the period of time prior to the trial. I can think of no other reason for that to have happened than that you thought it would work to your advantage somehow in this process. It will not. You will not raise that child. You will have nothing to do with that child. On April 1, 1996, Christine Bunch was transported to the Indiana State Women's Prison. She was five months pregnant and 22 years old. After finishing the intake process, Christine was issued a new identity, inmate number 966069. A new name, a new home, and the end of a life. Christine felt as if she had entered a black hole and was swallowed by an infinite blank space. The whole world, her old world, seemed impossibly far away now, and there was no going back. In the months following her entrance to prison, Christine barely registered her new reality between waves of grief, disbelief, and shock. She was still mourning the loss of Anthony, and soon she would lose another child. In July 1996, one year after Anthony's death, Christine gave birth to a second son. When she awoke from the fog of her C-section, Christine realized her leg was chained to the hospital bed. 
She briefly held her baby boy before the infant was taken away and handed over to Christine's mother. She named him Trenton Michael, Trent for short, and returned to prison the very next day. Christine felt utterly alone. She had no money, no connections, and was at least 30 years away from parole. But with Trent's birth, Christine saw hope for a new future, one with her son beyond the prison walls. She promised herself to fight for that future with everything she had. Through other inmates, Christine learned of the direct appeal process. Christine wrote to the court, explaining the limited contact with her state-appointed attorney and the media conjecture surrounding her case that led to an unfair trial. A few months later, on June 9, 1998, she received a response in the mail. The Indiana Supreme Court affirmed Christine's conviction and 60-year sentence, citing the same report from the ATF that had damned her at the trial. Her direct appeal was denied. Now 24 years old, Christine had been imprisoned for two years. She was devastated by the outcome, but determined to keep trying. Another prisoner who worked in the prison law library told Christine about post-conviction relief, a process that would grant a prisoner an entirely new trial. In Indiana, grounds for relief included the discovery of new evidence, as well as violations of constitutional rights, such as an ineffective counsel or unlawful arrest. Christine was galvanized. Her case for relief was promising, but there was a catch. Winning a motion for post-conviction relief saddles the defendant with an impossibly high burden of proof, guilty until proven innocent. Despite this, Christine felt reinvigorated. This finally was a way out. Christine became obsessed with her own case. She requested the court transcript of her trial and devoured law literature in the prison library. She waded through chapters of legalese and the requirements of post-conviction relief. She didn't understand it all, but one thing was clear. She needed a lawyer. Christine sent letter after letter to almost every Indiana law firm listed in the prison phone book, pleading for their help. Her family had no money for an attorney, and she was desperate for someone to work her case pro bono. In the meantime, Christine refused to wait, committing herself to studying law and arson in particular. Rejection letters from attorneys continued to trickle in as Christine memorized every detail of her case. Then in 2003, after seven years in prison, 29-year-old Christine finally received a reply. Attorney Hillary Bo Ricks kept a messy corner office in a worn building in downtown Indianapolis. But she was a straight shooter with over 20 years of experience representing hundreds of convicts. When she received Christine Bunch's letter, she knew it was a promising case. In exchange for Christine's own research and an affordable payment plan, Ricks agreed to represent her. For the next several years, the women worked in tandem, looking up similar arson cases and learning patterns in fire investigation. 
Then in 2006, Ricks filed a petition for post-conviction relief seeking a retrial. But as they waited for the court's response, Christine's story had made its way to the office of a much more powerful advocate. In downtown Chicago, the center of wrongful convictions occupied a posh, window-lined building overlooking Lake Michigan. The spacious, tidy offices were a far cry from Hillary Bo Rick's cluttered desk in Indianapolis, but the center's work was just as urgent. Since its founding in 1998, the CWC had exonerated more people than almost any wrongful conviction clinic, and naturally its services were in high demand. The clinic accepted only select cases from the hundreds of requests they received. In 2006, a Chicago college student wrote a letter to the CWC detailing Christine's case. Someone, the student wrote, needed to help Christine Bunch. The letter was referred to CWC senior staff attorney Jane Rayleigh. Rayleigh was one of the CWC's rising stars. In just six years, she had already freed a handful of exonerees. And when she read Christine Bunch's story, she identified with it. Rayleigh was also an Indiana native and a mother. But more importantly, she realized Christine Bunch had a strong case. Rayleigh said, the case was just screaming at us that this was the real thing. This is a woman who has no prior criminal record, no psychiatric history, no eyewitnesses. There was nothing there. The next day, Rayleigh called Hillary Bo Ricks and cut right to the chase. She asked Ricks if she thought Christine was innocent. Without hesitation, Ricks answered, 100%. Rayleigh and the CWC team soon took over the case while Ricks agreed to stay on as a local liaison for Christine. The CWC also recruited Ron Safer to join the team. He was a powerful Chicago litigator who spent a decade as the lead prosecutor in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Chicago, where he tried dozens of arson cases. Rayleigh and Safer knew that in order to make Christine's request for post-conviction relief convincing to the court, they would need new evidence, something big that would unravel the prosecution's theory on how the blaze began. But first, they needed a new team of experts. Christine's counsel contacted several arson investigators and secured some of the biggest names in fire science. John Maluli, a former ATF agent well-versed in fire scenes, and John DeHaan, author of the most widely used textbook for fire investigation. After reviewing the evidence, both Maluli and DeHaan agreed the arson testimony presented by the prosecution at Christine's trial was wrong. In 2009, 13 years after Christine's trial, the National Academy of Sciences issued a congressional report detailing serious flaws in the American forensic fire science system. They called for major reform. Some of the flaws and misinformation they reported directly impacted Christine Bunch's case. The telltale signs of arson that investigators once relied on, such as the V patterns, were now considered myth more than fact. In the 21st century, experts embraced more scientific investigation techniques, finding flaws in the conclusions of past cases. Essentially, fires once thought to be arson 
were now being proven to be anything but. The CWC's fire experts believed Christine's case was one of them. But there was still one hurdle, the lab report from the ATF. The report was based on hard numbers and scientific tests, and the results had been clear. Traces of liquid accelerant were found in the areas that investigators claimed the fire had started. The report was the linchpin of the prosecution's entire case against Christine. But if they removed the pin, the whole conviction could come tumbling down. Christine's counsel honed in on the ATF report and immediately found their way in. They needed the raw data. None of Christine's attorneys had ever seen more than the final report that was entered into evidence. And surely there was more in the original test results than what the prosecution had presented. If they could analyze the specifics of the findings, maybe they could identify a loophole or margin of error, anything they could use to poke holes in the report. Obtaining the raw data was crucial in reconstructing Christine's case. Rayleigh and Safer subpoenaed the ATF for the report's original findings, and soon the ATF responded. Christine's team received pages and pages of previously undisclosed documents. They were dumbstruck by what they found. Only three of the 10 samples taken from the trailer had tested positive for liquid accelerant, and none of them were found in critical areas of the scene. As they paged through the results, they realized something chilling. Handwriting was scrawled across the typed report of the data. According to the report, the samples from the living room and bedroom floors, the areas the prosecution claimed Christine doused with gasoline, were negative for any trace of liquid accelerant. However, someone had crossed out the negative results and added the two samples by hand to the positive column. Not a trace of flammable substances had been found in either the living room or bedroom. Someone had entirely overwritten the test results, intentionally altering the outcome. The crux of the prosecution's argument was entirely fabricated. These findings were a windfall. Rayleigh and Safer could not only argue that the fire science used to convict Christine was outdated, but they had proof that her constitutional right to due process had been intentionally and maliciously violated. The distorted test results were the direct result of state corruption. Now they had more than enough to substantiate a petition for a new trial. It was the break Christine had been praying for, and yet she felt crushed. The handwriting on the ATF's test had altered not just a piece of paper, but her entire life, her son's life, the person behind the pen had wanted her in prison regardless of the truth. In November of 2008, not long after Christine's 34th birthday, Rayleigh filed an amendment to Christine's original petition for post-conviction relief. Months later, Christine's counsel finally received a reply. Christine Bunch was granted a hearing for the following October. Coming up, Christine Bunch gets a second chance. Now back to the story. After 12 years in prison, 
34-year-old Christine Bunch's petition for post-conviction relief was granted in November of 2008. Her attorneys from the Chicago-based Center on Wrongful Conviction, Jane Raley and Ron Safer, were confident that the charges against Christine would be overturned. The post-conviction evidentiary hearing was scheduled for the following year, October 20, 2009. The news instilled Christine with new hope. For the first time, she had a concrete reason to believe that there was a chance she could get out of prison before she was in her 50s, before her son became an adult. But her counsel advised her to temper her expectations. Winning post-conviction relief was no guarantee, even with science and a dream team of attorneys on your side, especially in the state of Indiana. According to the director of Indiana University's Wrongful Conviction Clinic, very few post-conviction relief verdicts are granted in the Hoosier state, and this is for a very specific reason. Indiana law dictates that relief hearings must occur in the same court where the original trial was held, often involving the same judge and prosecutor, and Christine's case was no exception. On October 20, 2009, Christine Bunch's trial was brought back to life in the same court that had sentenced her 13 years prior. And though Christine's life had drastically changed since that fateful day, the Decatur County Courthouse remained almost unchanged. Judge John Westhafer still presided over the district, and William Smith remained the state's prosecuting attorney. But this time, there was no jury. The decision was Judge Westhafer's alone. Christine walked quickly past a group of reporters, finally stepping into the Decatur courtroom. As she did, she felt a familiar terror flooding her chest. But unlike her trial in 1996, this time Christine had a champion, Ron Safer. With over a decade of litigation experience in Chicago, Safer was far from intimidated by the quaint Indiana courtroom. In his opening statement, Safer launched the trial on a hopeful tone, saying, quote, We celebrate over the next two days a unique feature of our justice system, the right to a second chance. We are not saying Christine Bunch was railroaded into a conviction. We are not saying she was the victim of an overzealous prosecutor. We are saying the world has changed. Safer first called to the stand expert witness John DeHaan, the textbook author and international authority on fire science. DeHaan testified that there was no scientific basis for arson in Christine's case, as advances in fire science over the years undermined the state's original theories. Furthermore, DeHaan contended that the investigation did not consider every potential cause of an accidental fire, including electrical failure. At the time of the blaze, Christine's 22-year-old trailer had all of its original wiring, floors, and ceilings. John DeHaan was a star expert witness, and Safer knew how to use him. Safer weaponized DeHaan's answers in his direct questioning, knocking down the pillars of the prosecution's arson testimony one by one. And then he set DeHaan up to deliver a final blow. 
He asked if there was another explanation for why areas of the trailer floor had tested positive for liquid accelerant. Dahan answered, absolutely. In fact, there was a very innocent explanation. At one time, there had been a kerosene heater in the living room, one of the areas of the trailer that had suffered the most severe burns. The accelerant was left over from that. Dahan's reply rippled through the courtroom audience, but his time on the stand wasn't over. William Smith still got his cross-examination. Smith began by pointing out that in the original trial, the kerosene heater theory had, in fact, been addressed. What Mr. Dehan neglected to mention was that the kerosene heater in Christine's home was removed in 1987. The trailer fire had occurred nearly eight years later in 1995. Smith noted that by Dehan's own admission in testimony, the residuals of kerosene wouldn't have lasted more than a few years. Dahan stumbled to reply. Smith addressed the court with what would become the thesis of his argument. The new evidence the defense had cited in their petition for a retrial wasn't new at all. Therefore, Christine Bunch did not meet the criteria for post-conviction relief. And as for the defense's claim that the withholding of the original ATF report was a constitutional violation, Smith insisted that the report's raw data was brought up in trial when Smith asked the ATF chemist, William Kennard, to explain the test to the court. The explanation, Smith concluded, might have been too technical for most jurors to fully comprehend, but nonetheless, the data was discussed. Smith then turned to Judge Westhafer to reiterate his point. The defense may have had new experts, but the evidence, he argued, remained unchanged. But Safer expected this approach and was prepared. He calmly took the floor again and shifted the courtroom's attention to an entirely new angle, not discussed at the 1996 trial, Tony's autopsy report. Safer called Jamie McAllister, a forensic toxicology expert, and the defense's dark horse. McAllister's expertise was the effects of fire combustion on its victims, and recent advances in the field shed light on details of Tony's death that were previously unexamined. McAllister explained that Tony hadn't died of burns, as investigators assumed at the time. He had died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Tony's carboxyhemoglobin level was an astronomical 80%. 50% is considered fatal. Blood toxicology, McAllister pointed out, wasn't widely used to evaluate suspected arsons until 2001, explaining why the original forensic scientist didn't address it in their 1996 testimony. But McAllister was just building to her point. The presence of carbon monoxide in his blood did more than prove Tony's true cause of death, it also explained the fire's origin. Carbon monoxide, McAllister explained, couldn't be created from material found in home flooring, but it was commonly released from chemicals found in enclosed and unventilated spaces, like the trailer's ceiling. McAllister proposed a different theory on the fire's origins. 
It had ignited in Tony's bedroom ceiling as an electrical fire, most likely from old wiring. Carbon monoxide accumulated in the small space and then seeped into the room below, eventually killing Tony and causing Christine to inhale a critical amount. Christine most likely would have experienced severe carbon monoxide poisoning, one of its telltale symptoms being confusion. This confusion would have explained Christine's inconsistent statements to authorities on the day of the fire. McAllister's testimony not only justified Christine's retrial, but potentially proved her innocence. There was a likely explanation for an accidental fire, not arson. The evidentiary hearing had spanned over two days, but now the decision rested with Judge Westhafer. For eight months, he deliberated the case. On June 8, 2010, Christine and her counsel received his verdict. Christine was denied post-conviction relief. In his written statement, Westhafer concluded that while Bunch had new resources available to her, new experts do not create new evidence. The issues raised and the conclusions reached, while packaged differently, remain basically the same as they were at trial in 1996. Christine was 36 years old and 14 years into her 60-year prison sentence. She had no hope of parole for at least another decade. Despair lurked around the corner, but her attorneys had prepared her for this likelihood. Winning an evidentiary hearing in Indiana was rare. They started the appeals process right away. Over a year later, on July 13, 2011, Ron Safer argued Christine's case once again. This trial was held before a three-member panel of the Indiana Court of Appeals in the State House's Supreme Court, but Christine was not allowed to attend. Safer alone presented the defense's argument. The proceedings lasted only one hour. Then they waited. For almost a year, Christine languished in prison, thinking constantly about being freed, but life outside her walls had changed. There was email, cell phones, and a 15-year-old son who had grown up without her. Then, in March of 2012, Christine was summoned by prison staff to take a call. It was Hillary Bo Ricks, her local Indiana attorney, and she had the appeal verdict. Ricks skipped to the bottom of the statement, reading to Christine the concluding line, we reverse the post-conviction court's denial of Bunch's petition for post-conviction relief and remand for a new trial. Christine sat down, stood up, and sat again. Tears streamed down her face. They had won. They had finally won. The Indiana Court of Appeals ruled two to one to reverse Christine's conviction and call for an entirely new trial. Christine Bunch was closer to freedom than she had ever been. And on September 1st, 2012, freedom greeted her on the other side of the Indiana State Women's Prison Gate. Christine walked through the prison's entrance and into the arms of her family. Trent, 
the baby boy she had given up 16 years before was nearly her height, but now, finally, she could really hold him. When asked by reporters what the day meant to her, Christine simply answered, It's everything, more than I can put into words. It had been 17 years, one month, and 16 days since Christine's wrongful arrest. A few months after her release, the prosecution dropped all charges and declined to seek a new trial. Christine was officially free. But her fight still wasn't over. When she walked out of prison, Christine had nothing but her name and a life that had been put on hold. Indiana, she learned, provided no assistance to those who were falsely convicted. Now Christine is trying to change that. She became an advocate for exonerees across the country, founding a nonprofit called Just Is For Just Us. The organization fights for legislation that would require states to support exonerated individuals as they transition back into society. In 2014, Christine filed a civil rights lawsuit against Brian Frank and James Skaggs, the Indiana state arson investigators who had falsified the ATF's reports. As of 2018, Bunch is in the process of suing the investigators $1 million for every year she was imprisoned, a total of $17 million but no amount of money can fully make up for the years she lost, all for a crime that didn't even happen. Christine resolved to use her freedom to make changes. She couldn't get back her past, but she was determined to seize her future with a vengeance. At her release, when asked by reporters why she felt no bitterness from the 17 years she'd lost, Christine's answer was simple. There was no time to be bitter. There was still a lot to be done. Thanks for listening to Not Guilty. We'll be back Thursday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Not Guilty, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, on Spotify or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. See you next week. Not Guilty was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Not Guilty was written by Alex Garland. I'm Vanessa Richardson.